Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. It's kind of dangerous lyrics to sing, don't you think? What if all you had was Christ? What if all you had was Christ? Could you sing hallelujah? I mean, if there was no comfort, no ease, no stability, no safety, no sense of ease, you're running from those who were oppressing the message of Jesus Christ, imagine yourself as a first century follower at times, running away from persecution, running away because where you were wasn't safe because you kept talking about Jesus and the people that were in authority, the people who had power, the people who had political sway and influence were chasing you down, running after you, taking your property. If all you had was Christ, that's it. Could you still say hallelujah? Man, that's a hard thing to sing, right? It's a hard thing to mean. It may be easy to let the lyrics come out of your mouth, but to mean those words from the heart, man, that's tough. That's tough. I want us to consider how we sing, consider how we worship. As we journey to our passage, I want us to really consider what makes us sing, what makes us worship, what compels us to sing, what moves us, drives us, pushes us kind of over the edge to just let those words come out of our mouth. Now, what makes you sing? Uh, just, just think back maybe to the last time. This could be last week. This could have been yesterday. Maybe a couple months ago. When you were sitting in traffic on the bridge. Because that's what it's there for. Is to have you sit in traffic. You're sitting in traffic on the bridge. You didn't carpool. You didn't ride share. You didn't do anything. You're, you're just all alone. You're on the bridge staring at brake lights. And then that song comes on. Now you don't have to admit in church because you'd probably be embarrassed what that song is. But maybe it's a song from your childhood. Maybe it's that song from your eighth grade dance. When you finally got enough, you know, gumption to go across the room and ask that girl to dance. Right? There's just that song, that, that, that jam, that one that you just you belt out at the top of your lungs every time it comes on. And you're sitting in traffic and the song comes on and you just let it out. I mean, you are just so focused. Everything is kind of just blurry around you. You're starting to become more demonstrative with your actions. You're emotionate, or emotionate, emotional, passionate, unrestrained, reckless, even if you will. And you just get in that moment where you can't do anything but sing like you're in karaoke in the car and you're loving it. And you don't realize how much you're into it until you happen to stare at the car next to you. And the guy driving looks at you with a shocked face. Uh, right? Well, what in that song compelled you to sing? Right? If you can think of that moment, you can think of that song. What compels you to sing? What moves you and drives you? Just kind of throw off your idea of public perception and just say, I'm going to sing. I'm going to embarrass myself. I don't care. You know, I just saw a, a beautiful thing at this wedding reception. I did this wedding and it was... It was awesome, and it was fun, the ceremony was great, but there was this moment, man, there was this moment at the reception where the best man and the groom sang this duet that they had rehearsed to the bride, and these dudes belted it out. I mean, I was blown away. There was this one point where I actually locked eyes with the bride from across the room, and she's watching as this whole thing is going on. Her and I lock eyes, and I look at her like, wow, and she says the same thing. 
Wow. I mean, she's blown away. Everybody in the room. I don't think anybody knew about it. I don't. It was a surprise. It was a shock. And these guys, I mean, they were just in the zone. Singing. The, the speaker was loud, but they were louder. What would cause a groom to not care about what everybody else thought? What would make him be so extravagant, borderline embarrassed, or embarrassing? What would make him be so passionate, so public about his affection for his new bride? Why would he sing to her in that way? Because he loves her. And he treasures her. When you come into this room, why do you sing? Why do you worship? When I come in this room, I'm not a good singer. I'm a terrible singer. I come from a family of singers, but I'm not a good singer. Ask anybody in the section right here. That's your amen time, right? If you're within earshot of me, you know, oh my gosh, something happened to the speakers, right? What is wrong with this guy? But I can't help it. Like, I come in here and I, we sing these songs. I can't help but sing but loud. What makes me sing so loud and so poorly at the same time? What causes you to sing? What compels you to sing, to worship? You love him. You treasure him. So much to the point that you don't care who's around you. You don't care that your 11-year-old daughter is over here on the pew tugging at your arm because she's standing next to her friend and dad, you're singing way too loud and she can hear you, right? What causes us to worship? What causes us to sing? We're going to jump into John chapter 12 and what we're going to see is a woman give an extravagant display of worship. An emotional, passionate, public, embarrassing display of worship. And as we look at her act of worship, I want you to ask yourself this question. Why should I worship like her? Why should I worship like her? As we see her display, her extravagant and embarrassing display of worship to Jesus, I want you to ask yourself the question, why should you worship like her? In our passage, just the magnitude of her worship is going to come out because it's painted against the backdrop of betrayal and disbelief of one of Jesus' closest followers. Mary is the one who's just going to show this amazing sense of worship. And Judas, one of Jesus' closest followers, will be so disgusted by Jesus, so repelled by what he does, that he'll sell Jesus out. He'll throw Jesus away. This is what I think you're going to see as we journey through John chapter 12, the first 11 verses. And I want you to write this down. If you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. It's going to be our big idea for today. Our big idea is this. Judas's trash is Mary's treasure. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, another man's trash, or one man's trash is another man's treasure. That totally encapsulates the contrast that we have in our passage this morning. Judas is going to see Jesus as trash, garbage. Get it out of the way. I've got something better to take its place. Dispose of it. Get rid of it. Jesus is going to be seen as trash to Judas. But to Mary, Mary is going to treasure Jesus so much so she's not going to care. 
She's going to be like you in that car on the bridge, bridge in traffic, just letting all the lyrics out. Mary is going to be like that groom that I saw at that wedding reception singing at the top of his lungs to his new bride. She is going to embarrass herself with how much worship she's going to give to Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself the question, why should you worship like that? Let's journey in the passage, John chapter 12. I'm going to start with verse 1. John chapter 12, verse 1. We're in a a mini-series in the big series in the Gospel of John. We're journeying through the Gospel of John, and right now we're at a point we're calling it Jesus' farewell tour. This is when Jesus is kind of ending his public ministry. From this point on, or actually after this point, Jesus will only be meeting with his disciples kind of having a very kind of intimate time with them. And then he's going to have a time with his father in prayer, and then he'll be arrested. So this is kind of closing out his public ministry. And in the closeout of this public ministry, at a very pivotal pivotal time in the plot line of John, we get this wonderful display of worship and also this terrible depiction of betrayal. So let's jump John chapter 12, starting with verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Verse 3 tells us that Mary was there as well. What's going on? Well, if you remember from last week and a couple weeks ago, we just went through the resurrection of Lazarus. There are three people here at this party that we're told, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We're familiar with this group of people who are having this awesome party for Jesus in honor of Jesus. And why is this party happening? Well, a very significant event has just happened. A dead guy came back to life. That's pretty big. Pretty good reason to have a party. Right? We have culminating moments in our life. Somebody graduates from high school or college. You have a a baby shower, a a wedding shower. You have a a marriage and a reception. Right? But none is bigger than all of those events. None is bigger than a dead guy coming back to life. Right? That's that's a reason to call the caterer to figure out a party. So that's probably what's happening here is they're, they're celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. They're celebrating Jesus, the one who has the power to raise Lazarus. And so you have the family there, Mary. Martha and Lazarus. And it says that they're reclining at the table. Now for us, that's a little weird because we sit at tables. We, we don't recline at tables. But in the first century world, they probably had this kind of U-shaped table that was not very high and they would lean toward the table so their mouth was close to the food. And they would extend their legs out from the table. And we'll see why that's important. Because this will give Mary direct access to the feet of Jesus. She probably could get access to him without anybody knowing because everybody is focused on leaning into the table, into the meal, into the conversation. And then Mary comes in and has an extravagant display of worship. But before we get to that, let's look at the last time we saw Mary. The last time we saw Mary wasn't pretty. The last time we saw Mary, it wasn't uh, that she was painted in the best light. If you go to John chapter 11, verse 33, you see that Mary is in sorrow. She is weeping. She is sad. She's in grief. She just lost her brother. This is before Jesus performed that wonderful miracle and rose him from the grave. Before that ever happens, Mary is weeping. 
And Jesus' response to her weeping is very interesting. Look at John chapter 11, verse 33, because Jesus is going to be disturbed by how she mourns. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, this is Jesus witnessing Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Disgusted is a very fair term to use. He doesn't like it. He's indignant. He's angry. He's mad about it. Now, we unpacked this a couple weeks weeks ago about what that was about. What was going on there? Is Jesus mad that she's sad? No, that's not what's going on. We see Jesus will weep in John chapter 11. We see Jesus weep and cry in other passages. We know God is very emotional, that he gets sad. It's not that sadness makes him mad. It's that she's grieving without hope. Jesus, when he saw the other sister, Martha, he comes to her. She sees her grieving, but then he extends to her hope. Hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. She'll see that. She'll see the power of Jesus as he brings Lazarus back to life. But he also says, but I can give you more than that. More than that? What's more than that? Right? What's the main course if the appetizer, appetizer is somebody coming back from the dead? He says, the main course, what I really offer to you is the hope of eternal life, is resurrection life, that I can give you a life now that will pass through death. Not just give you a better afterlife and a better understanding of that, but I'm going to give you something now that will take you to that moment. If you believe in me, I'm the resurrection and the life. But Mary does not show this sense of hope. And Jesus is disturbed. He's troubled by it. So the last time we saw Mary, what do we know of her? She's in unbelief. She's in disbelief. She's grieving without hope. But something happened. Something changed. Something dramatic. She saw her brother come back. And I believe she heard the message of Jesus, told to her sister that he's the resurrection and the life. And now she responds much differently. Look at how she responds. Now, her reverence for Jesus takes another level. Her treasuring of Jesus goes to another level. Look what it says in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? What is going on here? She breaks into this meal and starts washing the feet of Jesus with this pure nard, this ointment, this perfume. She takes out her hair and starts wiping Jesus' feet. What is she doing? There are a lot of things here, a lot of details here that show us the magnitude of the extravagance of what she's doing and also the embarrassment of what she's doing. First take the idea of the perfume. Right? This ointment. What is this? This ointment or perfume is unique not only in its quality, but also in the quantity used at this point. In quality, it says it's made from pure nard. What is that? Right? You probably don't find perfume by Calvin Klein made from pure nard anymore. 
This was a, an ointment that was extracted very delicately from a plant from very, very far away, from very distant lands. This is a very expensive perfume, very expensive ointment. Judas somehow is able to appraise it right when he sees it, right when he smells it. He says, this is about 300 denarii worth of perfume and ointment. 300 denarii. That may not calculate for you, but that is about... a the year earnings of an average laborer in the first century world. So imagine that. Imagine a bottle of perfume that is your entire annual salary. Whatever that number is, before taxes, right? Which would be huge in California, right? Before taxes, in one bottle, you have a whole year's worth of income. And what does it say she does with it? She pours it all out. How extravagant. Let's be honest. How reckless. A year's worth? This is crazy. Crazy. And the amount that she gives, it says one pound, which if you take from Roman to American kind of pounds, it'd be about 12 ounces. 12 ounces of perfume poured out. Now, if that doesn't register in your mind, if you're not a person who uses perfume... That would be like 10, or sorry, five bottles of perfume. Five bottles of perfume. Can you imagine pouring one bottle of your perfume on your body? Just one. Now, you think Rona is bad. Man, you'd be giving people hives around you. People would be coughing around you, sneezing. I mean, they would just, you would just assault, right, their sense of smell. A whole bottle poured out. And she pours out one, two, three, four, five bottles worth of perfume to wash the feet of Jesus. No wonder John says, and the fragrance filled the room. It probably filled the city, right? People are sneezing, right? I mean, everything's going crazy. Their eyes are watering. I mean, I'm sure it was just this extravagant and really reckless display of service. Because for a woman in the first century world, there wasn't a lot of work. They were the ones most likely to be oppressed by the systems of their day. They were the ones most likely to be in jeopardy. And from what we know of Mary and Martha, they had no husband. They lived with their brother Lazarus. So Lazarus was probably the one who was the primary earner in the family, not Mary or Martha. And she gives this extravagant gift, which could be her entire inheritance from her father, or it could be her dowry, which is going to allow her to get married. She's putting herself in financial jeopardy. This is reckless. It'd be like you liquidating your entire retirement and putting it into a bottle and then breaking it and washing Jesus' feet with it. What in the world is this woman doing? And not only does she give this very extravagant gift in this perfume, in this ointment, she does the most menial task. She washes Jesus' feet that's gross. Especially in the first century world. Like, the, the, the sneaker game in first century Palestine wasn't very impressive. Right? I mean, they, it was just sandals. Journeying all these distances. I mean, you got just nasty, just dirty feet. It was gross. The people who washed feet were slaves. And yet Mary takes the most expensive thing that she owns. Putting herself in financial jeopardy putting herself in a very unsecure position, maybe ruining her chances to ever be married. 
She breaks that and washes Jesus' dirty feet with it. What is going on? Why does she worship in such a way? But it goes even beyond that. It says that she unbraidles her hair and she starts washing Jesus' feet, not with a cloth, but with her hair. For a Jewish woman to do this in the first century world, to loosen her hair was to be a sign of low morals. Right? I don't think I need to unpack that anymore. This is scandalous, what she's doing. Borderline provocative. She's embarrassing herself before Jesus. And everybody in the room would probably see the same exact thing. What is she doing? Wasteful, reckless, ruinous, scandalous, profane. Why does she worship like that? So extravagantly, so embarrassingly, so passionately, so publicly. Because Jesus brought her brother back to life. And when you realize the power of Jesus, what he has done on your behalf, you can't help to be unrestrained. You have to work to restrain yourself. Affection just boils over. You're like that groom staring at his bride. He didn't care if the mic was on or if anybody was in the room or anybody was a vocal coach or anything like that. He just sang to his new bride. That's exactly what's happening here. Mary just pours it all out before Jesus. Why would she worship like that? Because she treasured Jesus. Now sadly, sadly, This wonderful act of worship is painted in the backdrop of betrayal and unbelief. Look who enters in to the scene. Good old Judas, verse 4. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This guy seems compassionate. This guy seems merciful. What we'll find out is he's all about what? Money not mercy. He's all about cash, not compassion. He's all about greed, not generosity. And his greed is now masquerading as generosity. Look at how John kind of pulls back the curtain for us and shows us the true motives of Judas. It says this in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in. Jesus has a problem now. Mary, what are you doing? 300 denarii? Man, I could have taken 10%, 15%. Nobody would have known. I'm the one who's managing the money back. Mary, you're ruining my income stream. Right? You're cutting into my profit margin. This is not good. This is no longer a financially wise investment. Following this kind of group of believers around this rabbi is not working out like I wanted it to. Really, the financial forecast here is not great. I'm not getting the returns for my devotion to Jesus and his mission. I don't like this. And look at how Jesus responds. I think Jesus shocks everybody in the room. Everybody in the room. Now, most of his comments are very poignant to Judas, the one who spoke up. But I think Jesus is resetting and rebuking everybody's perspective in this room. 
You have this woman who's poured out five bottles of perfume onto the feet of Jesus, doing the act of a slave as if she were a woman of ill repute. Washing the feet of Jesus with her hair, being provocative, borderline immoral. But she doesn't care. She's unrestrained. She treasures Jesus. Judas speaks up and says, no, 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 but strategically, there's a better ministry adventure we should invest in. And what does Jesus say? Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone. Oh, do you feel the power of that? you imagine the guy who just brought somebody back to life talking to you like that? Leave her alone. Stop it. Stop it. Ooh. I bet Mary felt super good with that. And I bet Judas did not like that. It says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now look, look down at your Bible. I want to take this one very slow here in verse 7. It says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This is a little bit confusing, and it's hard to understand what's going on here. It's hard to understand the scene that we're just witnessed and this phrase that comes from Jesus. He says, leave her alone. Why? What's the reasoning to leave her alone? So she can keep it for the day of my burial. Now, what's the it referring to? Is the it the anointment or the ointment? Is it the perfume? I don't think that makes sense. I don't think that makes sense because what we're seeing here and what Judas is complaining about is that she's wasted everything. She poured it all out on Jesus and the fragrance filled the house. She has none left. There's not the idea that she used a portion and then is saving a portion for the burial of Jesus. I don't think that's the fairest way to read it. I don't think Mary has in mind that she is even anointing Jesus for burial. Why is that? Because just read the rest of the Gospels. Everybody's shocked when Jesus dies. Even though he tells them what's going to happen and why he's going to Jerusalem, nobody receives the crucifixion of Jesus well in the first century world until after he raises from the dead. So I don't think Mary has kind of insider information here, and she is thinking to herself, this is for his burial. I don't think the it there is the ointment. I think it's the anointing. Here's what I mean by that. I think what is happening here, it says, leave her alone that she may keep it, meaning keep the memory of what she is doing right now. Because she doesn't know this, but she's preparing my body for burial. Because she's not the one who anoints Jesus' body. That is burial. That's, that's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea in John chapter 19. It's not Mary. So I don't think Mary was intending to spend this on Jesus' burial. I think what's happening here is she just wants to worship Jesus. She wants to be extravagant with Jesus. She's, she wants to humbly serve Jesus. She wants to wash his feet, to do the work of a slave in such a way that she could show her gratitude that she has given life to her brother, but also that he has given her the gift of eternal life. So I think what Jesus is saying here is, is she doesn't know it yet, but you leave her alone because what she's doing is important. She'll hold on to that memory so that when I die, she'll look back on it and say, what I did was an act that prepared him for his burial. Now, how does this sit well with Judas? 
How does he feel at this moment? Now, John doesn't give us the reaction, but Matthew and Mark do. Jump to Mark, Mark chapter 14, and look at what happens right after for Judas. I mean, imagine how you would feel if you were in a room of your colleagues and the boss just calls you to the mat in the conference room. He doesn't take you aside to your office and rebuke you. No, in front of everybody. Can you imagine being in a conference room, your boss standing up, pointing at you and saying, leave it alone. At that moment, are you thinking, man, I can't wait for boss's day. I'm going to get him that cup, world's best boss. Right? You're not thinking that. You're thinking to yourself, man, when he's not looking. Right? Are you thinking, I'm going to get off work early and I'm going to stab his tires and we'll see, ooh, how cool are you now? Right? You're thinking of that. No, you're not thinking of that because you're a Christian. But I'd be thinking that. Right? It does not sit well with Judas. Look at the next thing he does. Jesus has just ruined his income stream. Destroyed his profit margin. And Judas says, that's it. I'm done with you, Jesus. You are trash to me. All right, look at Mark chapter 14. We have the same anointing. Mark records it. Matthew records it. John records it. But Matthew and Mark tell us what happens next. In verse 10, here's what happens. This is right after Jesus' open rebuke to Judas. It says this in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Let that sit with you for a moment. He was an insider. He was right there. One of the twelve. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. He got the daily interaction with Jesus. He saw a dead guy come back to life. I mean, just think about that. Even looking at the other Gospels, he was sent out with miraculous power to announce the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. This guy was an insider. And he had all the evidence, evidence that we would beg for as believers in the 21st century world. He saw with his own eyes. But when Jesus touched his idol, Jesus is now trash. Because what is Judas' treasure? Wealth. And when Jesus touches our idol, when he touches the center of our heart's devotion, now he's in the way. Now he's in the way and he's got to go. Because now he's a threat. Right, look at what Judas does. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him what? Money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Oh. Do you see what happened? What was the turning point for Judas? Jesus, you're getting in the way of my financial planning. You're getting in the way of my financial goals. So you need to get out of it. This is Jesus, though. Jesus is incredibly dangerous to our dreams. Incredibly dangerous to our desires. If there is anything at the center of our heart that is not honoring to him, he is a threat to it. If at the center of your heart is your family, Jesus is a threat to that. At the center of your heart is your career, Jesus is a threat to that. At the center of your heart is the building of wealth, Jesus is a threat to that. 
If at the center of your heart is political power, which we'll see in the end here of our passage, then Jesus is a threat to that. And the closer and closer you get to him, the more you will realize that, that you either treasure him or he's trash to you. Because he gets in the way of every single one of your ambitions and calls them all to bow to him. And if they won't bow to him, then he's at odds with them. That's exactly what Judas felt. He didn't need any more convincing. There couldn't be any more evidence given him. But what was wrong? He didn't treasure Jesus. Look at how John closes out this part. This, to me, just struck me anew. This really made me sad. Look at the last part here. Verse 9. And then when a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. It is dangerous to be a friend of Jesus, right? You become collateral damage to the cause of Christ. This, I think, is foreshadowing what we're going to see in chapter 15 and chapter 16 when Jesus will tell his followers, hey, they're going to hate you and they're going to kill you. In fact, they're going to kill you and they think they're going to do it in devotion to God. How messed up is that going to be? These are the guys that Judas is joining. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I was so sad just to encounter this. I mean, just think about reading the Gospel of John. Like, for the first time, you don't know the story of Christianity. You don't know all the stories. And you're just journeying through. You're introduced into the antagonist of the, 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 the story of John. We know it's the religious leaders from the very beginning. We see that in John chapter 1. But then Jesus has this band of followers that have come out of the Jewish religion. Right? He's seeking these people. He's not against the Jews. It's just the religious leaders who are infatuated political power that position themselves against Jesus. But then Jesus calls these people, these devout Jews, out. And then he has this inner circle. And they see everything. And they hear everything. And they're given power. And now, right here is the turn where one of the insiders joins the antagonist. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Jesus got in the way. So Jesus has to go. How sad. How sad is that? But that's not the highlight of this passage. The highlight of the passage is what? Mary. In her devotion, radical commitment, embarrassing act of worship. And why? Why? Why would she do that? Why would she embarrass herself? Why would she show up in such a way, publicly, passionately, laying everything out emotionally, embarrassing herself, being the talk in the room, setting herself against one of the closest followers of Jesus Christ? This is risky. This is crazy. Why would she lose all sense of Safety and security, giving herself to be in a very financially vulnerable position. Why would she do that? Because this guy can be deaf. And 
he's shown it in bringing her brother back, and he's shown it in the promise that he has given her. Chuck, one of our elders who prayed during the service, we're in our meeting on Wednesdays. We're kind of finalize everything in the message, and so we're in this meeting, and Chuck just said, I think, this very profound statement. As we're reflecting on Mary, he said, you know, when... When Jesus rescues you, when he redeems you, he saves you, when he forgives you of your sins and gives you the hope of eternal life through his death and resurrection, when Jesus does that, you can't give enough back. You can't serve him enough. You can't give enough devotion. There's never too much devotion or too much attention or too much time or too much of your life The way Chuck said it was like, it is exhausting at times trying to say thank you. Trying to say, can I give everything to you? If you gave me a thousand lifetimes, you could have every single moment of all of them. And that is true. So let me ask you, the very beginning, why do you sing? Why do you worship? Why should you worship like this? Why should you worship like Mary? Because you treasure him. As a pastoral team, we talked about, well, what do you do after studying a passage like this? And we said the only thing you could do is worship, to sing. So the band's going to come up right now. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand with me. I want to set up this moment for us. So go ahead and stand. The band's going to come on stage. Let me set up this moment for us. Why did Mary sing? Why did she worship? Why was she extravagant? Why was she risking embarrassment? Why was she throwing away public opinion? Why did she not care? Why was she reckless? Because she treasured Jesus. Do you treasure Jesus? Do you have any reason to treasure him? Any reason to sing to him? Any reason just to pour out everything before him? To sing in an ugly way, almost. In an embarrassing way, almost. In a reckless way, almost. Do you have any reason to treasure Jesus? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think of the reasons that you have to treasure Jesus. Just ask yourself that question. Make it personal. Take that general question. Is there any reason, any reason I have to treasure Jesus? Any reason I have to sing? And as you close your eyes, just think of what God has done for you in your past. Does Paul Crandall, Paul Robert Crandall, have any reason to treasure Jesus? Oh, yes, I do. I treasure him because he's taken away my sin and my shame. I treasure him because he chased me down. I hated him, hated him, passionately pursued to hate him. I didn't love him, and yet he chased me down. He didn't wait for me to come to him. I was like a child throwing a tantrum, running away from my parents. 
But just like the embrace of a father over a toddler, he can hold on even when they're raging. Even when that toddler is biting his arm, sweating just in trying to get away from dad, and yet dad holds on with a loving embrace. And that's exactly what God has done for Paul Robert Crandall. He held me, chased me down, embraced me, and whispered love into my ears as I raged against him. Do I have any reason to sing? Absolutely I do. Do you have any reason to sing? Church, do you treasure him? He may not have brought your dead family members back to life, but he has given you the gift of eternal life. He has given you such a confidence in death that you can stare down that moment with determination. That you can grin. You can grin as you are on the precipice of stepping into the next. As you are about to lose the last bit of air in your lungs. When your heart makes that last beat. When that last electron fires in your brain. You can grin in the face of death because you know what's next. And you know it's better. And it is Jesus Christ who has given that to you. Can you treasure Christ? So here's what I want you to do. Show him. Show him. Pour it out. Maybe it's time to unbridle your hair a little bit. Oh, but what about the person next to me? They're going to sing ugly too. You'll be an ugly quartet. Awesome. As we sing this song, I want this to be the loudest song we've ever sung about Bible Church. Because why? Because we treasure Jesus Christ. Embarrass yourself. Be extravagant for Him. Be passionate for Him. Be public with Him. Sing to Jesus Christ. Father, I thank You. I think You are highly pleased today. I think think what You saw, Christ, almost 2,000 years ago, And the great gift, the humble service of worship that you saw in Mary. I think you saw that gesture today. I think you saw that right here at Valley Bible Church. I think it's so interesting. In Matthew and Mark, they say that this account will be told. And it's true that it was. Thousands have heard of what Mary did. Millions have heard, maybe even billions have heard of what Mary did. And I pray that Valley Bible Church's worship would be that That what we do here in worshiping, in treasuring Jesus Christ will just invade our community, invade all the spaces around us. Father, I pray, I pray for everybody in this room, Father. I pray that you bless them, that you would keep them, that you would keep them strong. Father, that their worship would be worn on them every single day of their life. They couldn't stop treasuring Jesus even in times of trial. They couldn't stop treasuring Jesus even in times of prosperity. When the bank account looks high or the creditors are calling, whatever it is, Father, I pray that they would just wear their worship. There would always be a reason to sing, to worship, to pour out everything 
be with us. And Father, I know how dangerous it is to the agenda of Satan when people worship like this. It becomes a threat. But we know a kingdom that is real, that is coming, and that is ours. So we'll worship until he comes and gets us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Peace be with you. You are sent from the service.